1: Michael, I have a feeling you are a member of lots of online communities, possibly even the founder of like really dorky social studies online communities that are also kind of cool, you know, in the social
0: studies world. Okay. So obviously, we are both co moderators of SS Chat, which is a social studies community where we get together and talk about teaching. Yeah, um, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But besides that, I used to be a member of this community in which we would discuss the television show Lost so much detail on that show and i loved it and so you know you would talk the whole week you know in anticipation what's going to happen and you would break down every scene at one point i was actually debating starting a website called literally lost where i would me and my friends would analyze books that they mention because it was going to be liter you know literature of lost uh we didn't do that but i bought the domain nonetheless but it was a really fun way to discuss this thing that we all loved and my god I, i i miss it sometimes
1: Fan communities are, are fascinating and uh, Henry Jenkins has written a lot about like what educators can learn from how fan communities operate and also like how we can integrate those types of communities into learning. Yeah. Have you ever done like other sites like Reddit? Have you ever gotten to Reddit communities? Are you part of like Facebook groups that you're active in?
0: Only, I mean, I'm part of our, uh, our Facebook group for, for SS Chat. Um, so there's that. But mostly that's just like, you know, posting and posting and, and then discussing.
1: So many people participate in message boards, they get online, they're engaging in conversations. And so I think the logical question for educators is how can we make those same benefits, the reasons people go into those spaces, um, work educationally, work in online classes, work in hybrid classes that are partially online. I've thought about this a little bit, but I don't know that I have any answers. So we brought on friend of the show, back to back episodes. B2B. This is like winning. This is like winning back to back MVPs. This is pretty big. Our co SS chat organizer and leader, Chris Hitchcock. Welcome, Chris.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for agreeing to see us again.
1: So we heard about some of your background in episode thirty-two. But could you now tell us uh, in a little bit more detail about your background in education?
2: Sure. Well, I started teaching in 1995 um, in southwestern Indiana at a, it wasn't a real big city, but there were five public high schools, so it was like 1,600 students. Um, And then I moved to upstate New York, taught there for five years, one year in a really small school, K-12, 435 students. Wow. And then... Yeah, it was really tiny. And then went back to a more, for me, normal size school, <laughs> about 1,600 students. And then we moved to Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., in a suburb. And that was probably about a 1,000-student high school. Then I we moved again. <laughs> this is kind of the story of our lives, like every five years, moving on. I just like um, and- that
1: you define your career by the number of students that were surrounding you in it. <laughs>
2: Well, it's just kind of like the size of the school, just to give you an idea of what it was like, because that one, the one year in the really tiny school was very, it was really cool. And I really learned a lot. Yeah, but it was just really, it was kind of a shock to my system, because it was so much smaller, and just such a completely different environment than what I had experienced previously. Um, It was
0: like, it was
1: kind of the equivalent of being in like a LinkedIn education group, like there's really not anyone else participating.
2: And I was the only world global studies teacher, so there was nobody really to bounce ideas off of, and it was a completely rural community, So, and I was com- a complete transplant from Indiana to upstate New York, so it was really kind of overwhelming and bizarre, but like I said, I learned a lot that year because the school put me through some training and things with a system that they were really big on, and it was great because I used a lot of that down the road, but... Yeah, it was it was different. Yeah. So then when I moved to Ohio, um, we were in a really kind of rural area, college town. There weren't a lot of teaching opportunities there. And I ended up working for an online public charter school for two years. And then we moved again. And I could not keep teaching there while I was living out of state. So I uh, jumped ship again, and now I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm teaching for a private online high school that is affiliated with Indiana University. It's called Indiana University High School, very creative name.
0: So you were bitten by the virtual bug?
2: Yes and no. Um, It was an opportunity and it offered flexibility that as a parent and as the spouse of someone who has to travel frequently for work, The flexibility was very important. But there are things about online teaching that I like, and there are things about online teaching that I don't like,
1: kind of like anything else. What is it like teaching online? I think more and more teachers are either teaching in hybrid uh, situations where, and some teachers are doing it voluntarily, you know, looking to support what they're doing by adding online components to their classes. And then other classes, particularly at the university level, but in high schools too, um, are starting to move to more fully online programs. So, what, what have you learned from doing so?
2: Well, I would say the biggest mindset challenge that I had to get, a, um, get past was that it's really challenging to reach students who don't want to be reached when you're teaching online. Yeah. When you're teaching face-to-face, if a student is not attending or if they're in your class, but they're not really there mentally, you can see that and you can talk to them. You can, you know, move closer to them and try to get them back. And if a student in
0: your online class
2: does not want to be engaged, it's really hard to find them and make them communicate with you.
0: So I taught a class online students around the, yeah, around the States. Uh, But yeah, it was hard to track some of them down. So yes, I feel you. What are some other benefits or issues that you that you know teachers may inco- encounter when they are dealing in an online world? Well, one of the
2: things that I found in my last position was that while we had online or li- live synchronous sessions, because this was just students in one state, so they were all in the same time zone and everything, that was great. Except that the school didn't require students to attend those. So you'd often have like a few students there, but it was great to kind of get that interaction and have the opportunity to, you know, create learning experiences and trying to figure out a way to do that online versus in a face-to-face classroom with the actual, you know, people being there and being able to move around the room and things like that. But in my current job, I have students, I have a student in Germany right now, I have a student in Thailand, I have (laughs) students in various states around the country, so there is no time that works for a synchronous component of the instruction. So everything is asynchronous, which creates its own set of challenges. So there's, it's the struggle to find a way to convey information and to set things up so the students actually are engaged and not just with the material, but also with each other, but in an asynchronous way. So we've kind of used Google Docs and commenting for that and discussion boards and things. But I'd like to integrate some other things like VoiceThread and things like that where the students are actually kind of talking more. Another issue with our current setup is that it's a rolling envi- enrolling enrollment, so not all the students are at the same place in the class at any Mm -hmm. given time. So that's a whole other issue. So basically they're kind of finding little networks. I think you had Howard Reingold on, in a previous episode. And I think he, he talks about like kind of learning networks and students kind of finding their own groups. And I think that's kind of what they do here. The students that are in similar places in the class kind of find each other and they network together and they kind of keep each other going and keep each other motivated to continue on and give each other feedback.
1: Yeah, that was episode 30, where Howard Rheingold is on. Thank you for the pubbing that for us. Yeah, I think that that is difficult, because synchronous activities, you know, obviously, in person, they, they're just a different aesthetic like experience. And so I've been teaching more online classes at the college level. And I've been struggling with how to make the experiences authentic and meaningful. And so Michael and I have talked previously about creating authentic media, and that's been one of my biggest strategies. Um, the problem on the episode other end 13. is it, episode 13. We're going to cover them all, everyone, in this yeah. episode, if nothing else. Um, uh, and creating authentic media is great. And, they, you know, I have them write, creating blog posts, videos, podcasts, you know, whatever assignments or things we're trying to learn, I want them to create something about it that they can really share with an authentic audience So they pick. You know, they try to write as if you're not in the class, but you're writing for other fellow educators in the educational community. And I encourage them to use Twitter and other places to share it out. And I try to let them decide how much to share. Like if they don't really don't feel ready to share a lot of their work, you know, most people won't see it because it's just their own little blogs and stuff. And so I've been experimenting with that, but I still felt, um, well, A, I felt like I had a lot of work to do and I did. The grading component of it was kind of overwhelming and, and still is really causes a problem sometimes and keeping up with it. And then secondly, I just felt like I was missing something still. And so I was able to work in asynchronous video conferences into my class. And it's made a nice difference. I feel like I'm having an hour of video conferences. And I just had to build a lot of flexibility because there weren't set times for the class where they had numerous choices on when they could join in those conversations. It was never required. You had to be in this one so that's helped me a little bit, but that's something you can't do. You mentioned um, you do using audio thread. I do. I do know some educators have started to talk about using Voxer, and I, I've considered something like that. What are some other tools that you think might help?
2: Well, I know my English colleague has used Perusal, which is a a tool for annotating text digitally but you can do group annotations so she can load a pdf of an article that she wants the students to read and they she can add questions and comments and things into that. And then the students can respond to that and they see each other's and they can respond to each other's points as well. So even though it's asynchronous, even though people may be coming at it at different times, they can still learn from each other. Um, So a tool like that is helpful. I use Padlet a lot so the students can share their links to their work. So it embeds nicely in Canvas. There's a lot of tools for communication that My struggle with high school students is not wanting to make it so confusing that they have to join so many other tools outside of our learning management system. And some parents are very concerned about privacy issues, whether with, you know, like posting things very publicly, like what your blog posts would be, but then also some of them are even very um, concerned about their students setting up too many accounts for worries of their information getting out to the wrong place and since we're dealing with minors we kind of have to be a little bit respectful not a little bit we have mm-hmm. to be respectful of those concerns what am I saying that's part of the issue with teaching I think in general right now it's great that there are so many things out there that we can use but it's like the information overload there it's kind of like squirrel shiny new what's going on and I want to try this and this and this and this and you don't it's you almost have to pick like a few things and really focus on them and then try to build more things in as
1: you go.
0: That's a good quote.
1: Let's add that to our wall of quotes we're going to add on our site, Michael. Yes. I I think it, you, the privacy issue is really important and interesting. And I sh- I do struggle with that question because I do ask them to kind of put themselves online. And again, like if you have a blog post and you don't really should make an effort to share it, very few people will read it. Um, So it's really not that public. But I am asking them to write for a public audience, which can hopefully generate, um, you know, better work. But uh, yeah, so I have my students logging onto lots of things. They must have listened to you and been like, oh, we wish we had Chris because we have WordPress accounts. We have Twitter accounts, you know, and there's other there's a lot of stuff I've just said what I've done, gone to is I've made it optional and I've just encouraged them to do things like try podcasting and try making videos, which sometimes leads to more accounts. Well, that's
2: one of the things that I've done, too. I have in one of our intro, the course introduction module, one of the pages is basically content creation tools. And they don't have to use any of them. I have things like PowToon on there and Screencastify and something for making podcasts. I mean, there's a bunch of different things on there. But their final capstone project, this is for a world history course, basically tell them, I don't care what format you do it in, you know, you basically have to address these points But I'm not really concerned with what format you choose. You choose a format that A, fits with what you're doing, and B, that is comfortable for you or that pushes you to do something a little bit new. So I had students last semester who did slideshows. I had people who just did text-based responses. I had a student that did a narrated slideshow that was awesome, um, or narrated, I guess, more like a screencast, not a slideshow. But it was amazing. I learned a great deal because it was all about Transnistria. I didn't know anything about Transnistria. She was all about it. And she talked about their efforts with the difficulties that they have because they're between two countries, I think Romania and Russia. And she worked in so many other things that we had talked about, like nationalism and um, conflict and religion and other things into this like 15 minute narrated screencast about the current state of affairs in transnistria and i said go on with your bad self yes so so, i mean you know there. students and some students did padlet wall posts i mean they did all kinds of things and they all worked
1: i'm sorry for my slow response i'm googling transnistria right now (laughs) because i know very little about that there's also a transnistria war that's the uh-huh. second thing that pops up. So, um, no, that's really cool. And it, it, it's awesome when your students are able to bring in new knowledge and create something that, um, you know, you can learn from. And I think that that really is possible in online environments to position student as center, as student centered. But I see a lot of online environments that are very linear, you know, and, and it's take this quiz, turn in this paper. There's little interaction between the students, you know, it's difficult sometimes though to create those spaces in course man some course management systems are better than others. My one thing is I really want I, I'm teaching future teachers and I want them to be able to use lots of technology tools. Uh, which so that means that they're gonna have some learning curves of using those tools. But I use tools almost exclusively out of our course management systems. You know, they have their own websites, that's where they turn their work in. You know, we use Google quizzes and other things like that. So I basically use nothing there. But it ends up, you know, sometimes causing a little bit of work to to be able to do that. So what do you think about feedback and assessment is such an important part of it? I mean, do you feel like you just have to really keep up with it or is there a way to give them feedback like the type of informal, you know, formative feedback you often give in a classroom when you're just talking with students?
2: I feel like I'm giving a lot of feedback, but the cool thing is because the students are sharing most of their work with each other, they're giving each other feedback And so I try to, I try to strike a balance between giving them feedback, like with via comments on Google Docs that they and other students can see. Like if I want to highlight something, like a really great observation that somebody made, I will probably highlight that and do a comment on their actual document so that everybody else can see it as well. Or if somebody brought up a point that I think could really be useful to other students in dealing with a common misconception, then I will try to highlight that publicly. But if a student gets something wrong, I try to give them feedback about that privately and give them the chance to correct that without making it a public, like call out type of thing. Oh, yeah. um, so Um, So there's that kind of balance between public and private feedback. But then there's also, like you said, just the amount of feedback that's given. So I try to use a few tools to help with that as too. So uh, things like auto text expander in Chrome. So like the things that I kind of say on everything at some point, you know, if you have any questions, please contact me this way or this way or this way. And, you know, type in four letters and then a whole, you know, sentence or two pops up. So there are kind of some workarounds for managing the time investment.
0: You can do that within Google too, um, like within Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Someone showed us how to do it. It was actually pretty sweet.
1: Um, it's interesting yeah. too, you're mentioning how you give feedback. Cause I know Michael, whenever his students get a, an, a question or an answer wrong, he usually hires a blimp and they have their name on it and it flies over the school until they're shamed into studying a little harder.
0: And hopefully they'll learn plus it, it put, gives people jobs. Um, I feel like the blimp industry in, in you know, my my, my school town is, is doing quite well.
1: Yeah, shaming and job creating. My, that's Michael's assessment, main assessment strategies.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, what advice, and I think we all, since we all do have some experience uh, with teaching online, but what advice do we have for educators who are concerned about teaching online, either fully online or more of like in a hybrid way?
2: Well, I'd say one of the big things is to talk with some people uh, who have actually done it. And look at some examples. Um, I think probably a lot of people that are getting into education at this point have probably had some online courses, like, you know, what Dan teaches in the teacher education program. So you have some, a lot of, I think a lot of teachers coming into the profession at this point will probably have had some experiences with online learning. So they'll have some kind of ideas of what works well and what maybe didn't work so well um i think one of the things that i struggle with because i'm not a big coding person or anything like that i don't have a super strong tech background i just kind of play around with stuff and try to see what works and I have my own method of organization that works for me, but I'm not sure that it works well for students. I just met a few weeks ago with a history professor that had designed our, like the second half of the American History Survey course for college, you know, generally college freshmen or whoever wants to take it. And I was like, I really like the way you have that course organized. I'm totally going to steal parts of that. Mm -hmm. So just having the opportunity to see other examples of the way people have organized their information. And I think another thing is if you have taught, the course or a, a version of the course to students face-to-face or in in any kind of capacity that is so helpful because you tend to understand where the breakdowns happen yeah. and i think that that's really even more important in an online course to get to, to know where those breakdowns and understanding happen like if you're teaching a certain topic and you know this is something that always that students always struggle with what is a way that I can make that as clear as possible.
0: I took a course at UMass Boston from this guy, Dr. Descala, who's kind of amazing. Actually, I took two of his courses because I I love the guy so much. One of the things that I just wish that he did was make a video to introduce the weeks or that, you know, that sessions topic in, in, we just had this piece of paper that I read and I was happy to read it again. He was a really smart guy. I was very happy to have, Um, but yeah, no, I, I do miss the, uh, like that, being able to see the person is something that I want to do.
1: I've really dabbled into creating some green screen videos this semester, and I do think the students think they're fun. Um, I feel like they always come off pretty goofy, which probably is humanizing and endearing uh, or not. Hopefully, <laughs> they think are, that. They are rather silly sometimes. Um, I try to make jokes that either work or don't. But you know you get better as you do it, and then as you do green screens, then you can do those with your students, and it's been cool because I do green screens and I encourage them to do them. Because some of the courses are online, um, some of our students are on campus and some aren't. But a few have actually stopped by and for their projects chose to do green screen videos, and I'm sure um, that I because I did them was helpful. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll help anyone do it. Um, I don't always know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm working on it. So, and then I think I think just referring to some of the common tech models have been helpful for me. The SAMR model, S-A-M-R model, just kind of helps you rethink what the heck am I doing with this technology? A lot of times people start using technologies, they just substitute them into their class. So like the technology work functions the exact same way as like the worksheet they were giving in class. But if you move to different kind of ways of thinking about it, eventually you can kind of redefine the activities to do something new. And so I think thinking in terms of the affordances of technologies, can help you rethink potentially what's possible. And then also the, t- the...
0: What is the SAMR model?
1: So the four parts of the SAMR model there, it's an acronym. So one is substitution, which basically says that tech acts as a direct tool substitute with no functional change from what you would have done without the technology. Augmentation is when tech acts as a direct tool substitute with some kind of functional improvement. So maybe instead of just like writing a paper, you're writing it on WordPress. It's pretty much the same thing if you're not sharing it out in any real ways. Um, but maybe like there's some slight improvements in what you're able to do, like add in a picture or something like that. But really, there's not any huge functional changes. You can modify. Modification is the next one, which means tech allows for significant task redesign. Um, and then redefinition is kind of seen as like the top thing that's way more than enhancement, but you're getting to transformation. And so in redefinition, the technology allows for the creation of new tasks that were previously kind of inconceivable. And so in my classes, what I've done is uh, I've tried to shoot for that goal by using authentic media. So instead of writing a blog post or like a paper for my class, they're writing a blog post and I'm asking them to put it in public spaces. Um, and I'm also asking it to sometimes be multimedia where they add, You know, infographics, or they add videos in. So really, it really changes the nature of what they're doing, um, and also who they're doing it with by sharing with different audiences. So that's that's kind of Sammer's short. And then TPACK's the other one. I won't go through that one, but it's TPACK is pretty popular. It's the technological, pedagogical, content knowledge is what that stands for. And essentially, what it's asking you to do is consider like, why am I using this technology? What is the pedagogy behind it? And like, what is the content knowledge I want to teach? And if you keep an eye on all three of those things, you have a better chance of having success.
0: One of the things that I, I did struggle with, um, and I thought a lot about, was trying to build a community within my my class. Um, how are, What are some ways or some activities? I know that you teach asynchronous, asynchronistically. So how do you do that?
2: Well, in the first assignment that I have students do, they, they're supposed to write a little paragraph introducing themselves or have a video I, mean, I have a video that where i introduce myself and i talk about you know just a little bit about me and make some goofy star trek references hi, I'm chris. And
0: one time i taught at a school with only 400 students <laughs>
1: star trek hi i'm chris school size again? has changed considerably throughout my school career let me begin
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm a
2: numbers person what can i say no. <laughs> but yeah but it's been great because actually one of my students who's not in my cooperative course he's in one of our more traditional online, you basically just interact with the instructor and, you know, the student and that's it. They don't have a lot of outside interaction. He, I noticed on his picture in our LMS, the students can have a profile picture and he was flashing the Live Long and Prosper symbol. And so I asked him about that in one of my messages to him. And it totally led to this big conversation between he and I about his parents are like professor sociology professors, but they study Star Trek. And I said, I didn't know that was a thing. Where can I do this? I need to get into that. And he's met like all the Star Trek captain actors and goes to all the Star Trek, you know, big fan things and convocations or whatever. And it was really cool. But anyway, so in my cooperative class where the students actually introduce themselves and things, this semester I have like nine girls who are ballerinas. And so they've all like, oh these dancer too and you know so they make these connections or they find out that they're you know people that are really into cars or whatever else you know they find these connections um with each other and then also one of the things that they have to do in the world history course is I asked them in the first lesson after they introduce each other each introduce themselves they also um look at some historical themes like, what are some big themes in history, you know, government and economics, religion and belief systems, conflict and warfare, visual arts, music and drama, that kind of thing. And they I give them a little bit of information about each one of those. And then they have to rank them in order of importance to them. And it can be either, you know, what they think are the most important themes in history that have had the most impact or just personally what speaks to them. And then they look at they explain why they have ranked them the way that they have. And then basically their top ranked theme, that's what they use throughout the course as their lens through studying history. Interesting. So it's kind of a way of problematizing it for them. And yeah. so then they have like this personal connection to the content then, or they can make those connections more easily to themselves. And then in my second semester class, I have them use essential questions that are kind of based around those themes, but it's a little bit different just so they don't get totally bored with it. Um, and so that's that's been really cool because then they talk about like when, every time they share their work, they have to remind each other what their theme is and that kind of thing and ask a question like, what do they want people to focus on for their work that they're sharing? But they really start getting into, well, you interpreted this source this way, but I think that's because of your theme. You're thinking about conflict and warfare, where I'm thinking about religion and belief systems. So we're totally coming at this from different vantage points or different points of view. And it really makes for some cool discussions. And then we talk about, well, why do you think we have different sources? Why do we have 97 books about Abraham Lincoln? Ninety-seven thousand books about Abraham Lincoln, but everybody's coming at it from a different point of view, or they're focusing on a particular aspect of Lincoln's governance, or his dealing with struggles with
0: mental
1: illness, or whatever else. Or his I mean, struggles with vampire hunters.
0: Yes, exactly. With, yeah. I believe he <laughs> was cabinet. the vampire hunter.
1: Yeah, but I'm sure he struggled with fellow vampire uh, with hunters. With other ones, yeah. I yeah. I mean, humans struggle with other humans, right?
0: I guess that—that's the nature of history. That could be your theme.
1: That's my theme. No, my theme is continuity and change in school size.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> that's right. Just kidding.
2: And in uh, unnatural <laughs> creatures and. <all> that.
1: <laughs> but yeah, um, so that's
2: a way. To, that's another way to make community is that you know they're not just talking about their interests, but then their interests inform the way that they're approaching looking at history, and so that leads to additional ways for them to make connections with each other, but also with the
1: materials. I think. You know, what you're talking about, Chris, is I think just good teaching in general, right? I mean, you're you're giving your students some sense of ownership over the topics that they're delving into um, in ways that take it beyond mere regurgitation of facts, but they're becoming active learners and they're engaging around topics together. I mean, you're talking, you know, for the students too, um, it is surprising that you had such a high number of ballerinas in a class, but um, for them to all discover that is obviously something they can kind of bond over. And I've been thinking about that a lot too, how the beginning of the course You really should spend a lot of time trying to find ways to get to know each other. And um, my students and I, they kind of helped me this semester come up with an idea for um, the importance of learning each other's names. And so we created a little podcast that I would re-listen to where they all said their names and told us some kind of story about their names. Um, I wrote a little blog post on it, but it it was cool because then I would listen to them talk about their own names before I went to class to make sure those first few weeks that I've got their names. And I'm going to start integrating that into the class. But it was just a cool way for us to start to come together as a class. So, That's really cool. I'd
2: like to steal that. <laughs> because that's one of the things. Sorry. That's one of the things in online teaching. A lot of times I just see their names printed. Mm-hmm. I don't get. They, I, if they don't leave me like a video or some kind of audio introduction. And most of them don't because they're like 15
1: and they're too cool for that. Or they're too like worried about
2: not being cool enough for that.
1: Having them drop a video or audio in a drop in a Dropbox link and then just throwing those in Audacity or tossing them in iMovie and mixing it together is actually really easy. And then you can send that back to them where they can see each other or hear each other saying their names or introducing something about them. And I yeah. think that is a worthwhile activity. And that's I just kind of recently came up with that. And I think next semester will be the first time I'd actually do it right at the beginning of the semester because we came up with yeah. it a, a few weeks into the semester this year. So that would be cool. I'm totally going to steal that. Yes. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. And everyone, if you don't know, Chris is uh, one of our co-leaders in SS Chat, and she just does a fantastic job of helping make SS Chat go. So we, we appreciate everything Chris does and contributes to that community and all the great work she's doing for her students. So thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. And Wow. Okay, thanks.
0: <laughs> so, Chris, where can our, our listeners find you and your work online?
2: Okay, you can find me on Twitter at hitch 94 I'm also doing a podcast called Talking Social Studies with three other social studies teachers from around the country, and that we're recording our third episode tonight.
1: Uh, it's our number one rival podcast.
2: <laughs> yes, team of
0: rivals here.
1: We're going to find a way to undercut it. Just kidding. We'll we will happily promote it. Um, it's and really we'll good. Link I've,
0: it in our show notes.
1: Yes, and I've actually listened to the first two episodes, and they're fantastic. I really enjoyed the discussion. Very um relaxed, kind of in, teachers who just uh, very I don't know practical. You like I love the the way you guys dig 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 right into um the things social studies teachers can do. So, uh, well we we appreciate all the ways that you're contributing to the conversation, and here at Visions of Education. We hope to continue the discussions online and other spaces. And everybody tweet hitch 94 as many questions as you want because she's very good about responding.
0: And if you haven't already, hold on. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher.
1: If you write us a five-star review, then we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
0: And I'm at 42ThinkDeep.
1: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.